Be More Human by Graham Brown. Now, like most of you, I'm working from home. My whole team works from home. I've been working from home off and on in a hybrid environment for the best part of 20 years. We've had an office, but most of the work has been done from home. The office is really what I believe is going to be the new shape of the office, which is a hotel If anything, you know, you go there for meetings, conferences, and to check in. You don't don't really go there to do sort of the the base functional work of day-to-day. So I've been in that environment for a while and also have... Um, I spent quite a bit of time, a number of years, building a location-independent business, which is a business which, as it says on the tin is independent of its location. So I've run businesses on tropical islands, places like Okinawa, Bali, Phuket, Hawaii, Fiji. As long as you have an internet connection, and importantly, more than having a laptop and internet, you have a mindset that enables you to build a business in that way, then actually... What you begin to see is that the office itself isn't the problem that you're trying to address as a business owner, but it's actually a solution. You know, the problem being is how do we do business effectively? And the office is one way of doing that. It wasn't the raison d'etre of business itself. And I think what a lot of people are getting confused with right now is that they, you know, I've talked about it before. It's the Bruce Lee maxim that when people point the finger at the moon the problem is is that people look at the finger and not the moon and that's what we're doing now is that the finger is the office and the moon is the business and what's happening is we're looking at the finger and saying you know that's what we need when it isn't what we have to understand is that what we really needed is what I want to talk about in this podcast is the water cooler. Now, the water cooler is a concept, i.e. it's the water cooler, it's the campfire. It's that connection that is created when people come together. And I've got some data here, and I want to share some data from my latest report, the B2B podcast report, which, you you know, if you're interested in the data, then you can go and get more of this at b2bpodcastreport.com. It's the only B2B podcast report in the world. And the reason I'm sharing this and putting it out there into the world is because that's what I do. I do B2B podcasting, which is really about how do you not just communicate to sell, but how do you communicate to engage, to build teams, to create connection? And that's the problem that we have now, because ultimately the problem, which is the office issue that we're trying to deal with now, that's a communications problem. It's not an operational problem. We've got to see it as such, i.e. that really what's happening is, is a lot of the problems we're seeing now, a lot of the issues that are manifesting You know, people are talking about loneliness, people are talking about mental health, people are talking about, you know, what is the word I'm looking for? Micromanagement by managers, you know, people checking up on their hours. And there was a story that I shared in a previous podcast about a UK local government council, I think it was Hammersmith and Fulham, who said they issued an an operative to their employees and they said it's okay for them to smoke at work but actually what they meant was that it's okay for them to smoke in the office but the office was home and which really shows just how much of a dissonance there is between the mindset and the reality which was that actually the employer has no control over the employee environment at home. What the employee decides to do at home is the employee's choice. Obviously, they have to work and they have to perform the function of work, which they are contractually obliged to do. That's why they get paid. However, what they decide to do in that time really is of no consequence to the employer. So if they decide to smoke, that's their choice. If they want to kill themselves, that's their choice. As long as they're not impacting other employees, 
who don't have a say in the matter, which is what would be the case in an office. I actually remember in my very formative days as a teen working as an intern in an office, you know, doing photocopying, which is, you know, a, a typical intern's job back in the day where the boss would say, go and photocopy these. And you just stand at the photocopier all day, just, you know, watching this thing, just the, the flashing lights in front of your eyes. And I used to hate that job because the reason I hated that job was because the photocopier was located in an area where all the smokers were. And you had to go there and you'd sit and you'd just sit for an hour just waiting for these photocopies to run through and it would stink of smoke. And the irony was actually I smoked as a teenager. But there's nothing worse than secondhand smoke and there's nothing worse than the smell of secondhand smoke. So it made sense that my, you know, when, when regulations came out, employers said, no, no smoking in the office because it's not you, you're impacting it's everybody else around you but in your home doesn't matter so this is the problem we have now a lot of the issues that are manifesting about work from home are a result of this idea of work from home because actually it's not work from home what i want to impress upon people is that work isn't a place we go to work is what we do and therefore really what we have to see is this almost diversion in the path ahead is that either we take this path which is the old industrial model of thinking which is work from home is the office but at home which is Hammersmith and Fulham Council for example or a lot of employers today are taking this approach that we have all the benefits of working in the office, all the control systems and the structures and the communications pipelines that controlled communications in the office structure. However, none of the benefits of working from home, because actually, if I decide to work from home, I could sit here as I am now in a pair of shorts because it's Singapore and you don't need to wear heavy trousers or a hoodie, even though Diversion aside, so many Singaporean offices seem to be cool to 18 degrees C, which to me is absolutely crazy. I mean, I grew up in England. I spent all my life in cold weather. So when you go finally to the tropics, you're like, woohoo. And it's not the first place I've lived in the tropics, but you get excited. You go to the tropics and you, yeah, I'm going to live in this world where I can just walk around shorts and barefoot all day. And you go to that place and it's freezing. And people like it. Anyway, I don't understand. I guess it's the whole idea of you like what you can't have. And some way it's exotic. You know, I remember having an office in London. We had a lot of Indian employees who were not, you know, British-born Indians, Asians. But they were Indian who came to London, as a lot of people did and still do, go to London to study. And I remember distinctly the first winter, it snowed. as It, it sort of did sort of 50% of the time in London and it snowed and all the Indian employees got really excited and they all ran out into the car park, the parking lot. And they were all sort of like running around like kids. And for me, snow was like, Oh God, it means like getting up in the morning and scraping off ice from your car. You're there with a kettle pouring hot water onto the car to with the ice scraper. And it's like, Oh God, we're doing this again. But for the Indians, it's like, Ooh, yes, no. So anyway, diversion. The point being is that we are very much excited by to us to us what is exotic and in many ways work from home is exotic to people it's like you know this new frontier but we're really sort of adjusting and struggling with it i feel that you know what's kind of happening is that we're still looking at work from home both as employers and employees with this sort of this industrial era mindset which is what we should be doing is we should be focusing on really what the office did for us as opposed to the office. You know, what was the solution the office provided? And let's not get fixed on the, the structure of the office itself and try and recreate that. It's kind of like those old cargo cult myths of you've got these islands in the South Pacific where 
you know, years ago in the bygone eras of explorers who went out in their ships to the Spice Islands and looking for nutmeg and, you know, fighting pirates, they would get shipwrecked and their their goods would wash up on these Pacific islands, in these boxes, in these cargo boxes. And the islanders would find these gifts effectively that had washed up in these boxes, open them up, and then they would find valuable items. They would find gold or they would find food. Uh, you know, but they would consume all these products and just be left with these boxes, all these, you know, it could be a mast from the boat or in sort of more recent times, a, a, a an airplane wing, for example, you know, from World War One or World War Two, for example. And they would have these sort of disused items. And then what would happen is as generations progressed, they forgot about what the circumstances of those gifts were. They just kind of remembered very vaguely. And as each generation progressed, what happened was these islanders ended up just with the leftovers, which was this, you know, a discarded item from the ship or a wing from the aircraft. And then what would happen is, is they would worship these items as opposed to the gifts themselves, what was useful you know, the food or something, some tool from the ship and so on. And that's, you know, this is the, the cargo cult phenomenon, which is really exists as an apocryphal tale rather than truth. And it does exist. I mean, there are examples of it around the world where effectively people worship the finger rather than the moon. They forget because the moon becomes very, very distant and they just have the fish, the finger. So they're worshiping the icons as opposed to really the meaning. And we have got to that state with the office. And the meaning, which was the problem which the office tried to solve, was this connection that it could create. And if you look at the latest data, and there's two surveys that have come out this year. We have the US Work From Home Survey 2020 and the MIT Sloan Survey 2020. And they all talk about loss of social contact when asking people the question, what is the main thing you miss from not working in the office? Number one, 74% of people said, 74 said they missed social contact and conversations. And then you go down the list and number two is they said that collaborating with the team was harder. And number three was they missed socializing with colleagues. And number four was they missed the impromptu FaceTime. And I'm not talking about FaceTime, FaceTime. I'm talking about leaning over the office and saying, hey, Graham, do you want to go for a coffee? Or do you want to go and grab lunch now? Or do you want to go later? It's very impromptu. And that is... Whilst it's not structured, whilst it's not evident on the balance sheet, or it's not a physically manifested benefit of the office, it's probably the most important one, which is innovation, teams, all of the functional communication of a business happens in the loose conversations. Now, if you look at it now, a lot of business now is conducting its communications, not in loose conversations. People aren't simply talking to each other. They're not having loose conversations. They're not having water cooler conversations. What's happening is they're having very structured conversations, which is a 10 minute, a 15 minute Zoom call, a town hall, or even webinars. And the problem with that is if that becomes the default communications structure of our business, then we will lose everything that we got from the office, which was the impromptu, which was the social ties, which made working as a team so valuable. There is a concept in Japanese management philosophy, which really evolved from lean management, Toyota management philosophy. 
Toyota was until very recently the most valuable, most successful automotive brand in the world until Tesla st stood in. But over time, if you look at the last 20 years, the last 50 years, Toyota still is the most successful and maybe still will be in 10, 20 years time, just that its stock compared to Tesla isn't performing so well. They don't have Elon Musk as the main man. But a lot of what we talk about today, agile, lean startup, lean management, all comes from Toyota management philosophy. Toyota really was the, the, the origin of lean startup philosophy, which was that rather than lengthy planning processes. We need an agile approach to manufacturing. And in more recent times, people like Eric Ries learned that you could take those ideas and apply them to technology and to startups. One of the core concepts of Toyota management philosophy is Genba, a Japanese word, which is a sort of a portmanteau of two words, which you'll find a lot of Japanese words are combinations of two words like Pokemon, Pokemon, as we say in the West. Pokemon is the portmanteau of pocket monster, for example. Not many people know that, but I'll give you that one. Another one I'll throw out there is Godzilla. Actually, the, it's strange, but the, the word Godzilla comes from gorilla and kujila. Now, kujila in Japanese is whale and gorilla is obviously gorilla. And the story is, if you know anything about Godzilla, is that its parents were a gorilla and a whale. I'm not joking. I don't know how biologically that happened, but that's the story. So hence, take gorilla and kujila and you get Godzilla. Take pocket monster, you get Pokemon. There's a lot of them in that Japanese. And in fact, there's a lot more than we realize. But Gemba comes from the word of the two words, Genshi Genbutsu. Now, Genshi Genbutsu in Japanese is really only ever used in Toyota philosophy. Genshi Genbutsu means uh, to go and see. What it means is that in the Toyota management philosophy, one of the examples given is of a Toyota manager who is approached by an engineer who's on the factory line. And the engineer says, uh, we have a problem. We have a leaking machine and therefore we have to stop the line. And so the manager looks at it and says, why is the machine leaking? And the engineer says, well, the seals, the O-rings on the machine aren't fitting properly. And then the manager says, why aren't the O-reels, sorry, the O-rings, the seals fitting properly? And the, the engineer says, well, because the, the quality of the seals isn't so good. And he says, well, why isn't the quality of the seals so good? And the engineer says, well, because management made a decision six months ago to cut back on the procurement process and reduce costs. So what's happened here is in Toyota philosophy, there's this idea of these loose conversations, which is that you can f discover the problem, not on initial contact. Because if, for example, if an employee said to you, we've got a problem, then it's a very structured conversation, right? It's a very structured conversation in the sense that they're just telling you what it is. And you can imagine that sort of happens in every Zoom conversation today, you just get one hit. This is what it is. However, in, in a very unstructured manner, in a very open and trusting environment, loose environment over a coffee, people can give you insights that wouldn't normally be seen. And therefore, Genji Gembutz means really what they adopted and hijacked in the American philosophy in the 1980s was get your boots on. So basically get your boots on means in more sort of recent vernacular management by walking around, which is that you can't understand the problem 
from sitting in your seat. The, uh, the, you know, the whole idea is that you have to get out there and see the problem to understand it. And there are really good examples of this. Apple, for example, is credited be, being one of the most successful technology companies of all time. But Apple obviously only sort of came back into the fore in the last 10 years, 15 years at most. Obviously, a lot of that has to do with Steve Jobs' return. But key to Steve Jobs' return was the introduction of the Apple Store. Now, Ron Johnson, who spearheaded the Apple Store and took these globally, was keen on making this an environment for Apple employees to see what the problems were. Because if you bought an iPad or an iPhone, the problem is, is that if I was sitting here in my desk in the office, I wouldn't know how you were using it. My only context of how people were using it was myself, my family, and maybe people around me. And in many ways, that creates a problem. And it, for example, it's why many cities like Detroit have been in decline because, you know, if you worked for General Motors, your wife drove a General Motors or your husband drove a GMC car and your kids would get them and your neighbors would get them because they also worked in the plant. So effectively, all the employees would be driving them and nobody really knew what the problems were with them because, you know, it's obvious to you as an engineer why this windscreen wiper or why this light's not working properly and you could fix it or it would be obvious why the seats are shaped in a certain way because your team designed that. However, if you're surrounded by those people all the time, you get that emperor's new clothes problem, which is that nobody is calling it out. Nobody is saying, look, there's the problem. So when Ron Johnson and Steve Jobs designed the Apple store, that was why they designed it to bring the insights into the business. So when grandma walked into the Apple store with an iPad and said, I can't get this to work. And the Apple genius guy or gal said, okay, let me have a look at it for you. What they were doing is effectively bringing the living rooms and the homes of all their customers into the store. They weren't taking them into the office. They weren't sending them to a chatbot. They weren't sending them to a call center. They were bringing them to a face-to-face meeting because they knew if they got grandma and the Apple genius guy together, that the Apple genius guy could say, okay, I really understand the problem. I can empathize with the problem here. That is Genshi Gembut's management by walking around, creating that physical contact, that close contact, that unstructured contact that yields insights. Now, there are many examples of where this has yielded results with global brands, Apple being one. When we talk about Apple, we talk about Apple as an IT company. But the reality is, is that 63% of US employees work for supporting the Apple store. So if anything, Apple is a retail company, not an IT company. Think about that. Which means that Apple's success is not the result of software or hardware. It's not necessarily better than the next guys. There are great softwares and hardware competitors out there. What Apple does better is understand the problem. And if you look, for example, at the Apple Genius Manual, which is the manual given to those guys and girls that when you walk into the store, the people that come up to you with the black t-shirts and the iPad in their hands and the earpiece, and they say, hi, how can I help you today? And they're not trying to sell you something necessarily. They're just kind of listening to you. They're not sitting behind a cash register, a, a till. They're there to understand your problem. And the genius manual, which was really influenced by 
many of the sort of early pioneers in Apple. And I think it was, uh, if you've watched the, the, um, the Apple documentary on Netflix with, uh, I'm forgetting his name. You know, the guy who's the actor, um, I'm lost a little bit here, but I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who plays the number two, not Steve Wozniak. Sorry, not um, Wozniak. It was, you've got Steve Jobs and Woz. So, and then you've got this third guy that comes in who's got a Finnish name. So it's something like Mikko Mikola. Uh, forgive me. I'm off point here. Anyway, he was like the guy that came from Hewlett and Packard or wherever it was. He came from the large IT company. He was a major investor at the early stage. And when he wrote the Apple mission statement, he wrote those words empathy in it. And if you look at the Apple Genius Manual, which really is a a training manual for every single one of those employees when you walk into the store. It mentions the word empathy on every single page. If you get a copy of it, it's really interesting as a read. It's not a long manual. I think it's about this empathy, the word empathy written in there 13 times. Empathy, empathy, empathy. And it's to empathize with grandma when she walks into the room into the store. So they've created effectively what Apple did was create a space for empathy to happen. And there's a lot of focus now in business about empathy, empathy, empathy. And they're looking at empathy as a skill, which it patently isn't because empathy is not something that you can learn. Empathy exists naturally in you in the day you are born. Because there are neurons in your brain called mirror neurons, which are elements, parts of your brain, which fire and create positive feedback loops when you see somebody doing something similar to you or you connect with somebody. So these, these mirror neurons and also hormones inside our brain like oxytocin which are sometimes called the love hormone, are triggered when we create contact with people. It's why when a baby is born, it doesn't know what's happening, but its first instinct, apart from to breathe and to cry, is to reach for its mother. Think about that. That's in us from day one. And the mother's natural instinct is to hold her baby close because that has been programmed in us millions of years. That's in our brain because without that, our survival chances would be a lot lower. So we are from day one hardwired, whether we like it or not, to empathize and connect with other people. So when we try and create empathy inside the business, the issue isn't a lack of skill. The issue isn't a lack of hardware. It's in us all, apart from sociopaths who have no empathy because maybe they, have, they don't have that area of the brain so well developed. But for most people, the 95%, we can empathize. The issue now isn't why aren't my employers giving me training courses and empathy. That's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Because my point is, is that empathy happens naturally. If you see an old lady, if you see that grandma with the iPad again, falling down in the street, what is your natural reaction? Do you turn to the manual, the, the policy? Do you speak to your advisor, your supervisor, or do you go and help her? I think 95% people would go and help her. And they haven't been trained to do that. What effectively that is, is that we naturally empathize with others. And we know what to do that is right and what is wrong. We don't need a manual or a training book for that or a course or a mission statement. See, what happens is, is that companies 
forget this. And the whole industrial model was built on efficiency, which basically meant in the factory line, the human beings were the least efficient element of the line. So therefore, if they could eliminate humanity from the model, they would make it more efficient. If you're on a factory, you can't work 24 hours a day. You can't continue without bathroom breaks and cigarette breaks. And you need all that stuff if you're a worker. That's inefficient. So we've got to understand that the factory model has came from that need to eliminate humanity from the model because we are the weakest link. And therefore, as a part of eliminating humanity, what it has done is it's, it's co-opted humanity in the model and replaced it with proxies. So at the most basic level, branding. So branding is a proxy for humans in the organization because the last thing you want is your employees going out into the world and telling the world about your brand because they're not controllable and they all have their own interpretations nuances of the brand story that's the old model so what brands would do is they would co-opt the humanity inside their organization and replace it with a surrogate and the surrogate was a logo a mascot you know a clown in some cases which is the epitome of anti-humanity i mean what is more disturbing and creepy than a clown and that's what you get when you create a model which co-ops humanity you replace it with something that's inauthentic no nobody wants to build a relationship with a clown i mean not only is it weird but it's also you know i mean the, the word clown you certainly wouldn't get a clown to come in and and you know create a strategy for your company but that's the point is because for certain organizations, a clown is better than the employees because of the way they treat their employees is so inhuman that that is the least worst case scenario. Because if you start putting your fast food employees out there talking about the brand, you're in for trouble. Because go on a YouTube and look at every single, you know, Google YouTube McDonald's, for example, and see what people are saying. It's not good reading. It's not good watching. Often involves customers fighting with employees and the police. I mean, what kind of customer service is that? What kind of experience is that? The answer is that's an experience that happens when you dehumanize the process, when you co-opt natural human instinct of empathy with policy and mantras. And there can't be a more powerful and insidious mantra in dehumanizing employees then the mantra the customer is always right because what that effectively does is imply the employee is always wrong because if the customer is always right it means that the employee can never make a decision about anything because whatever decision they make the customer is always right the customer throws a 16 ounce soda at the employee customer's always right the customer starts shouting at another customer. Customer's always right. What decision-making capacity does it give to the employees? None. The opposite is the Apple Genius Manual, which doesn't say the customer is always right. But what it does imply is that the customer's problem is always right. And therefore, you genius have to make a decision about that problem how are you going to fix it how are you going to solve it how are you going to listen and provide an answer now so you've got two different versions of how you create engagement and experience one which is dehumanized industrial co-opted a proxy for human experience and one which is doubling down on what we are already making us more human 
Because when you walk into the Apple store, the, the first thing you'll notice that differentiates the Apple store from any big box retailer is that the store isn't built around the checkout. The store is built around front lines, the frontline staff who talk to you. And that's very different because the structure has changed. Because what Apple have said is like, it's not about the checkout. The checkout is actually pushed into the corner. It's the deepest part of the store. Whereas you walk into a big box retailer, you have to walk through the checkout to get to the store. Think about that. It's a very different structure and a very different mindset. And when you walk into a big box retailer and you see all the different sections, no different from Apple store, you try and talk to somebody. What happens is, and I did this the other day, pre-COVID, I walked into a store. I won't, I'm not going to name them here in Singapore. And I try to ask somebody like, where are the USB cables? And this guy, when he caught, he saw me in the corner of his eye. And as soon as he clocked me, he made his a beeline towards the back office to hide. It's almost like customers in their model are problems. Whereas you walk into an Apple store, they come right up to you. Hi, how are you doing today? How can I help you? It's very different. And if you look, for example, at the retail fast food model, you've got, for example, on the one hand, McDonald's, which is built around the robotic kitchen and there's a physical barrier between you and the frontline staff. And the only frontline staff that you do see beyond the wire, so to speak, in military terms, are people mopping the floors. And they look miserable and they really don't want to interact with you. All the people that are cleaning the tables. And yet, you go to a place like Heidi Lau Hotpot, which, the owner of which is the most, is the richest restaurateur in the world now. And Heidi Lau Hot Pot has the highest ratings of pretty much every restaurant I've seen of that sort of level in Singapore and in China. And the reason why Heidi Lau Hot Pot is so successful is because they re-engineered the model around frontline. You know, in a traditional kitchen, the seat of power is the kitchen. Sorry, in the traditional restaurant, the seat of power is the kitchen, the chef. And therefore, if you have that model, frontline isn't where decisions are made. The chef is calling out decisions like Gordon Ramsay style, barking out decisions and people are saying, yes, chef. And in McDonald's, it's similar. The machines are barking out decisions and people are just delivering them. The low end. But in Heidi Lau, it's the other way around. The chefs are robots cooking the food, but all the investment in manpower is frontline beyond the wire. So you've got all these serving staff who are doing like noodle dances and singing happy birthday and entertaining people and painting people's nails, seriously, in the frontline. Because that's where the experience happens. Not, it's not built around the office model. It's not built around the back office. And the point being now is that this is key to work from home and rethinking how we do it. Because we're facing this similar problem, which is you've got on the one hand this model which is dictated to by the physical nature of the, the business, which is the physical office model. Because we have a physical office model, we have to do things like this. But what Heidi Lau have done or what Apple have done and what we need to do is to say, let's not think about the office as the problem itself. The office is just one way of solving the problem, the physical office. So let's not think about work from home, sorry, work from office, but at home, let's think about work, not as a place, but as what we do. So we have to approach 
work today, not as McDonald's, but we have to approach as Apple and Heidi Lau, which is saying, what is the problem we're trying to solve here, guys? Nobody is asking that question. People aren't saying, what is the problem that the office solves? Because all they're doing is looking at the finger and saying, that is the problem. It isn't. The problem is, how do you compete? And when your rules, when the rules of the game are about efficiency, the factory model, the better way of competing, the best way of competing is to pull all your resources in one place. A silo. That makes it more efficient. General Electric, for example, has 1,200 lawyers in its legal department. In an office. Imagine that. That is efficient because you can put in legal secretaries in there. You can put in all different kinds of processes and operations specific to lawyers. And yet, if I need a lawyer now, just as I did the other day, I don't need to go to a law firm. I contact Asia Law Network and for 49 sing dollars, I can speak to a lawyer for 15 minutes. I don't have to hire his, her law firm. I just get answers to my question. It's like the Uber of law firms. Now, the problem is now that the open market is better at solving problems than the closed company department, the office. Think about that. Because we haven't realized that. What is the problem that it's trying to solve? Nobody's asking that question. If the problem is, is how do we compete better? then maybe we should think about models which allow us to compete better, not models which allow us to compete in a an era which is finished. The industrial era is over. There are no more gains to be had by being more efficient because if you want efficiency, give it to an algorithm, give it to AI. That's where efficiency is going to happen. But humanity is what machines can't do. And that's where the marginal gains are to be had. The marginal gains from being more authentic are higher than the marginal gains of being more efficient. And that's why you see results with, for example, highly loud hot pot, or you see results with Apple. Because what they're doing is they're investing in authenticity and not efficiency. And they are seeing the results. We had to do the same with the office. And so when you go back to the data, the US work from home survey and the MIT Sloan survey, what they're saying is what people are, what we, what the world is saying is that we miss social contact and conversation and we miss impromptu and we miss socializing. We miss all that. And without that, we won't be able to function properly, effectively. That will start to break down because so much of our team, our identity, our innovation comes from loose conversations. But we can rebuild those. We can reclaim the water cooler. We can build what I call B to E conversations, business to employee. And those are different formats. You're creating a campfire within the organization for people to gather around in an unstructured way and talk about conversations that matter with people that matter. That's where innovation happens, folks. Innovation and communication, the two functions of business, two reasons why business exists. That's why we had offices, because to innovate and to communicate in the industrial era, it made sense to do that in one place. But in the post-industrial era, in the era of artificial intelligence, the fourth industrial revolution, it doesn't make sense. So I started this conversation talking about reclaiming the water cooler. And what's going to happen over the next 10 years is this. There's going to be a a large divide, a tangible divide from the companies that do digital and the companies that be digital. Do digital means work from the office, but at home. The do digital companies will be operating out of an industrial era model. The do digital companies will be all about in 
digitalization, which is how do we use technology, digital technology specifically, to get better efficiency, to have better process, to optimize what we are already doing. That is like asking a manager, how do you get to the moon? And him saying, build a taller tower. It's not how you do it. That's do digital. So for do digital, it's about how do you replicate all the operations, functions, schema from the office in people's homes. That's why you have to have these op- these diktats almost from employers saying it's okay to smoke at home, which is completely crazy. Be digital, on the other hand, is not work from home but work from anywhere. Why does it matter if you're at home? Why can't you be in Bali? Why can't you be in Fiji? Why can't you be in a coffee shop? Why can't you be in the office? It doesn't matter. We need to build location independent businesses. And the way we do that, three things. Firstly, we have to stop talking about work from home and start talking about work from anywhere understanding that work from home is an echo of a previous era, a shockwave from the industrial era, which is still refusing to let go. It's new media, but business as usual. We have to stop talking about work from home and start talking about work from anywhere. In the same way, we had to look at TV, not as the radio with pictures or the early internet websites, not as brochures, but online. We have to approach it with a decentralized mindset. And that's key. And secondly, we need to realize that we are in and we are entering a new era of business. The industrial model is over. And the industrial model had a different way of competing. So... We have to change the solutions to those problems. We've got to understand what is the problem and what is the solution. And the problem is the industrial era and how to compete. And the solution is everything that went with it. So in that second point, we have to be able to separate the two. Solutions being offices, brands, controlled communication, communication as executive privilege rather than everybody's business. That whole pipeline model was a solution. It wasn't the problem itself. So if you change the problem, you need to change your solutions as well. So if we agree that we are moving out of the industrial era into the fourth industrial revolution, we also have to change the solutions because the mechanics, the physics of competition have changed. It no longer makes sense to be more efficient because machines can do all of that. We all have access to the same algorithms. So our focus now should be on solutions geared towards the problem, which is how do we be more authentic? How do we be more human? Because the yield gains from being more human are substantially higher than before. Because in the last model, in the last era, being human was an inefficiency. You were the guy that messed around in the production line or didn't work 24 hours a day. But today, we want humans. We want physical contact at the Apple store. We want to be entertained at Heidi Lauer Hotbot, that moment where it can all go wrong on a live entertainment. We want contact. We want real coffee served by baristas and not machines. And we want people to say, are you okay? Hold our hands. Or the emotional handshakes we get from impromptu conversations. We want all that. And it's more valuable than ever. We want CEOs to say, not dear customer, but hi, signed by love Tony from Tony Fernandez, CEO of AirAsia, for example. Not dear customer, signed the CEO. We don't want that. We want real, authentic leadership. So we have to understand that solutions need to change as well and let go of the industrial era and its solutions. And thirdly, we have to reclaim the water cooler. We have to understand that we need solutions adapted to this new environment. 
And those solutions don't mean new business, sorry, new media, but business as usual. Those mean new ways of thinking. We need to recreate campfires and water coolers virtually. We need to see the office as a hotel rather than a work. We need to see what we do as a channel to create more impromptu conversations. B2E podcasts, for example, campfire podcasts. We need to bring teams together not to broadcast, but to converse. We need to use communications not as campaigns, but as conversations. Bring those people together in that Toyota management way where they can have unstructured conversations and learn from each other. Hey, what are you up to? What's going on? Get insights, empathize with them as well. The winners will get it. Over time, they'll rise to the top. The winners will be those that recreate those campfires and water coolers inside their organizations, not structured town halls or one-way communications. Those have their place, but replace everything that 74% of people said they missed from the office, but online. Authentic conversations at scale, podcasts, Google Meets, Zoom Meets, where people can talk, communicate, and share those communications with a wider audience internally and externally. That's what reclaiming the water cooler is. And that's what we're going to see over the next two years, case study examples of it. I'm seeing it already. And I think this is the future. Work from home isn't the office, but at home, but a brave new world. And to take advantage of what this can offer. We have to be brave. We have to depart. We have to leave the old world behind and think different. <laughs>